In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have some topics that are interesting and in-depth and not as depressing as our regularly scheduled program, but still quite depressing. Uh, We're going to talk about the four executive orders, or in some cases more memorandum, that uh, Trump put out recently. Uh, Then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, antitrust laws and some of the testimonies that happened in Congress this week. And then we're going to end the pod by doing an in-depth exploration of the third-party candidates this time around. So I don't know about you, Michael, but I'm excited about today. Yeah, I'm excited. This is going to be a good episode. Let's first get an update on the numbers, Michael. Yeah, sure. So um, last week, the world broke 20 million cases. So we're currently Mm -hmm. sitting at 20.2 million, which is an 8% increase over the week before. which is actually, that increase is actually down from previous weeks where we were like week over week increasing at 12 to 13%. Um, so that's actually good news. And we've hit 737,000 deaths, which is a week over week increase of 5%, which is also down from the 7 to 8% we've seen over the past few weeks. Um, and then we've seen a 10% increase in total recovered cases, uh, which is down slightly from 16% from the last few weeks. But as of right now, 64% of total cases were recovered, which is up from 63% last week, so a little bit of improvement there. And then in the U.S., uh, at this point, we've had 5.2 million cases, which is a 6% increase from last week, so pretty similar to the world. Um, and that's that's down from about 11 to 12% increases over the past few weeks, which is good news. Um And then we've had 166,000 deaths, which is a 4% increase over last week, which is actually about where we've been as far as death rate goes. We've been, uh, we were at 4% like three weeks ago, week over week, and then then last week uh, the increase was like 7%. Um, And then currently we're at 2.7 million recovered, or about 52% of total cases recovered, which is up from 51% last week. So overall, things are slowly um, getting better. Um, But the good news is that, you know, the case spread is not getting faster, which is good news. It's still spreading, to be clear. It's still spreading. Yeah, still spreading. (laughs) Yeah. Which means that you do still need to take precautions. You do still need to wear masks when you're inside and do as much as you can to social distance when you are around people and uh, avoid large crowds as much as you can. Um, So today, Michael and I want to primarily focus on what is being done about this, specifically Four executive orders that Donald Trump recently signed, or, you know, I, you might not be able to call them all executive orders, more memoranda, mm-hmm. um, but we want to break these down, talk about 
the political first off the content of them then talk about the legal challenges to them and also talk about the strategy because it's actually a really interesting political strategy that donald trump is employing here now whether he's doing it on purpose or whether he just stumbled into a decent strategy who knows yeah <laughs> maybe he really is playing 3d chess who knows <laughs> No, he's not. No, he's not. But <laughs> yeah. But let, let's let's talk about them. So yes. Let's talk about the first executive order. Yeah. So the first one is Trump's attempted nod to an enhanced unemployment benefit by the federal government, um, and so he's kind of billing it as providing four hundred dollars a week in extra unemployment benefits through the federal government, but it's not exactly that. Yeah. Well, remember. Originally, the enhanced unemployment benefit was $600 a week, mm -hmm. and it expired on July 31st, which we talked a little bit about last week. Mm -hmm. So it is important to recognize that this is a reduction by $200 in what people were getting through the enhanced unemployment program. So, mm -hmm. but the way he's framing it is basically a, well, the Democrats have been playing a bunch of, you know, partisan chess with you with uh, your benefits. Yeah. Um, that they have been playing partisan games, and that that has caused those enhanced unemployment programs to run out. So here I am coming, giving you four hundred dollars a week. Which, by the way, let's break it down for a second. So the way that it would work is that. $300 would be provided by the federal government and 100 would be provided by states. But the problem is because of the pandemic and because of a lot of um, state recessions that are happening at once, yep. a lot of a lot of states are going to have trouble affording this. Yeah, exactly. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, states are currently faced with an estimated shortfall in their budgets of $555 billion dollars. Um, expected to extend through 2022. And that's before trying to pay for this extra $100 um, a week benefit for their unemployed. Yeah. And on top of that, it's unclear whether or not he actually has the authority to do this, which mm -hmm. creates not just complications in terms of legal challenges, but also complications in terms of practicality. So how is this going to happen? Who is going to allocate these funds? When are they going to come? Yeah. Especially if it's, you know, 300 from the federal government, 100 from uh, from states. There's a lot of questions of practicality. Yeah. So and on top of that, because it's not coming from Congress, these states are actually not able to track it and administer it through their nor like through the system that they have been using so far to provide the extra aid. So they would have to actually build a whole new system for administering this this ad hoc benefit. Um, and so one expert, Michelle Evermore, who's an unemployment expert at the National Employment Law Project, um, says that like developing those new administration systems would take months just to get this up and running. Um, and on top of that, in order to in order to get the extra three hundred dollars benefit from the federal government, you have to you have to qualify for the $100 benefit that the states have to supply. So yeah. we're talking about he's billing it as, oh, well, I'm just going from 600 to 400 But really, 
if this is even able to be administered at all, it's going to be administered to a much smaller group of people and at a much lower rate, yeah. and it's going to bankrupt states in the process. Yeah. And also, his argument for why are we making it 400 and not 600 is the same argument that Michael and I have been uh, ridiculing for the last month, which is basically, oh, well, we want to incentivize people to get back to work. Mm -hmm. So we'll make the same arguments that we've made thus far. Number one, we don't want to incentivize people to go back to work right now because as much as possible, we want to avoid contact. Mm -hmm. So if people have at-home jobs that they're able to do, if people are essential workers, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But we can't just create financial incentives for us to return to normal because returning to normal would mean that it would spread more. Yeah. And the other argument is it's basically an offshoot of the idea that, oh, well, isn't it just so terrible that people might be making more money <laughs> on unemployment than they are in their jobs? Which, again... I mean, the that is terrible. That, you should, <laughs> that is terrible, but the message that you should get from that is, huh, isn't it terrible that we're not paying people a living wage when they're working full time? Yeah. Yeah. Also, like, his just his whole messaging around this, that, you know, the Democrats are holding up stimulus in Congress, and that's why, you know, he's going to step in and get $400 down from 600 but it's still at least 400 better than zero, is silly yeah. for, you know, partially because the Republicans were proposing $200. Yeah. And also like what's continuing to hold things up is, is largely the Republicans putting together these proposals, you know, like, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a so, really poorly put together policy that is unlikely to work if it even is able to get off the ground. And ultimately it could delay the process. Yeah. But the strategy here is basically, they know that it's politically unpopular to fight against unemployment benefits, yeah. which is what they've basically been doing. So their idea is, all right, we're going to make an illegal executive order that can't possibly be enforced, that is completely just political theater, mm -hmm. so that we make it look like the Democrats, when they challenge it in the court, we make it look like they're the ones who are fighting against unemployment benefits. Yeah. yeah. Which, when you look at it like that, it's actually kind of a brilliant strategy. I mean, it's terrible. It's it's hideous. It's heinous. It's malicious. It's evil. But it's a pretty good strategy if you're looking at it from a sociopathic, yeah. uh, purely political strategist standpoint. It's also a pretty good strategy if you are a power-hungry wannabe dictator because yeah. one of the major... Um, checks and balances that Congress has on the executive is the power of the purse. And, yeah. and what he's, the gambit that he's laying out is basically, you know, if you try to litigate this thing, it's going to be political suicide for Democrats and it's going to, you know, take too long anyway. And two, but, but at the same time, that's a catch 22 is at the same time. If you let it stand, it's going to be precedence for like yeah. executives being able to take this kind of power in the future. And so, you yeah. know, if you think if you're Donald Trump and you think you're going to, you know, 
stay in power, delay the election or whatever, this is like a no loss strategy for you. Yeah. Which brings us to the second executive order, which is a payroll tax cut. Mm -hmm. So this definitely needs further explanation than just payroll tax cut. Yeah. Um, so basically, the idea is that he is instituting a tax holiday mm -hmm. uh, for Americans earning less than 100000 per year. However, it is important to note that this doesn't mean that employers cannot still, you know, um, take this out of your paycheck. Mm -hmm. It's basically just about whether or not the IRS is going to be collecting it. Yeah. Whether or not Social Security and Medicare is going to be collecting it in the first place. Yeah. So there's no actual mandate that you're not going to be paying this. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to end up actually benefiting any, anything. And even if you're not paying this, you are going to have to pay it eventually. Exactly. Which and is a huge Trump's point on the, the employer side, right? Like, they don't want to be on the hook for tax dollars that they yeah. are required to set aside and pay for you. So ultimately, when this bill comes due, it's going to come due somewhere. And I know, I'm, I'm sure employers are worried that they're going to have to foot it. And, and either way, if even if your employer doesn't, you're going to have to save up for it. And if you don't, yeah. you're going to look down a tax liability. Yeah. And there's one other thing that he's kind of, that's also another sort of sociopathically brilliant strategy, which <laughs> is he's saying that if he's reelected, he will make, he will turn that payroll tax cut or tax holiday into a permanent tax cut if he is reelected as president. Yeah. Basically saying, hey, I'm going to hold all of this money over you and you're either going to pay it all back to me uh, if I end up losing or if I win, then, you know, then you won't have to. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is he can't do that. <laughs> he can't do that because as you know, as Michael pointed out earlier, um, Congress has the power of the purse. Con only Congress has the authority to levy taxes, which is why, you know, what I said earlier, which was the fact that this can only affect whether or not taxes are collected, but not necessarily or collected by the government, but not necessarily the administration of it, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So what that means also, because I feel like a lot of people, when they see this, they think, oh, well, you know, maybe that's more uh, money in my pocket. Maybe mm -hmm. that's, you know, great in the short term. But those types of payroll taxes are what pays for Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. And making those permanent exacerbates the already existing uh, deficits within those programs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and even delaying the taxes put into those programs, you know, those programs are con constantly and continuing to pay out. They're, they're having people newly enrolled. They're paying out benefits. So they're, they're draining and the way that those programs work is kind of like um, a bucket with a hose in the top and a hole in the bottom. And if you turn the hose off at the top, the bucket will start to drain and you're going to have to, you know, to your point, like um, pay those, those uh, you know, withheld funds back in 
when we all have to pay our tax liabilities, or you're going to be running at even more of a deficit than, than we already are for these programs, which are already underfunded and could potentially, you know, this could potentially like shorten the lives of these programs because also, you know, money, the money that are, that is in these programs grows when it's in there. So, you know, when you cut off half of a year from the growth of the existing funding of social security, you're cutting off, you know, actual increases in money for that program. Yeah. So, yeah. And on, and on top of that as well, like, um, you know, from an employer perspective, they're going to have to create new systems in order to administer, even if they wanted to, the administer um, the payout of these payroll taxes, right? Like all payroll tax systems are designed to have a certain percentage put in and, and you know, taken out of your, your paycheck withheld and then sent to the government. So they're going to have to redesign these systems and that will take time, um, even if they wanted to. And um, on top of that, this will only help people that are employed, which is helpful, especially for yeah. people that are making potentially less money than they were before. Um, but it won't help independent contractors. So if you're looking at food delivery people, you know, not really Uber drivers these days, but you know, a lot of the a lot of the people that are helping to supply us in this time, it won't help them, um, and it won't help people that are unemployed. So that brings us to the third executive action, which this is one that I really do not want to call an executive order. No. It really is. It really is a memorandum where he basically was just like, hey, you know, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, Secretary of the Treasury, please consider putting limitations on evictions and foreclosures. Yeah. So because of the fact that the federal moratorium on housing evictions expired in July. That means that currently there are 12 million renters that are in danger of losing their houses. Mm -hmm. So the idea is we want those to, we want those protections to extend to the end of the year. But the problem is number one, this isn't, really an executive order it's just hey please do this yeah um and number two we don't know if he actually has the authority to do that yeah and 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 to be clear that doesn't mean that the sentiment that the the intention behind it like the goal behind it is not a good goal mm -hmm. but we don't know if it's actually going to do anything yeah yeah and also specifically the language says that um you know the secretary of health and human services and the director of the cdc um should look into halting residential evictions of tenants for failure to pay rent for quote or, or in order to quote prevent the further further spread of covid-19 that seems like a pretty easy loophole to me if he wanted to give a nod um to halting evictions without actually doing it because, like, oh, maybe evictions don't actually cause the spread of COVID-19, and then it's not a health and human services type of order. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And then that brings us to the fourth and final executive order, um, which was about keeping student loan interest at 0% and freezing loan payments. Mm -hmm. Which, again, something that I agree with. Yep. You know? 
but we don't know if he has the authority to do that. Yeah. In fact, he probably doesn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, of all of them, this one it seems like the most intact because it is literally just a three-month extension of the provisions that were in the CARES Act. Um, so again, like not clear that he can do it, but at least we know that it, it even works at all <laughs> if, it, yeah. if he did have the authority, which yeah. the other yeah. proposals don't look like they can. Yeah, no, not at all. So I guess what's important to note about these proposals is, number one, on a practical level, they're just political theater. And I feel like a lot of people are going to hear this and think, oh, well, y'all are just suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, he's doing <laughs> what you wanted him to do, right? I mean, he's extending... Uh, you know, he's trying to fight against foreclosures and evictions. He's trying to extend unemployment benefits. Um, he's trying to, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you naturally don't believe in the payroll tax because you're, you're a bunch of liberals and you love taxes. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, he's trying to uh, make interest rates on student loans 0%. Mm -hmm. Like, what's there to criticize? And that actually demonstrates the brilliance mm. of Trump's strategy here. Again, to be clear, it is, I don't know if this is him actually doing this consciously, because the other way of looking at it is he put a bunch of orders that he was too stupid to realize wouldn't actually have any legal ground because he doesn't know a damn thing about how government actually works. Um, and then just threw him out. And then s doing that kind of stumbled into a decent political strategy. Mm -hmm. But if we are looking at this, giving Trump, you know, the most credit we possibly could, it does put Democrats in an awkward position sure. where, uh, to Michael's point earlier, if they just let it go, then they are establishing a dangerous precedent. And they are also capitulating on all of the policies. Mm -hmm. You know, they're capitulating on um, not giving more funding to uh, not giving more funding to states and local governments. They're capitulating on reducing the enhanced unemployment benefit from six hundred to four hundred dollars. They're capitulating on this the cut in the payroll tax, and. Because the executive order is better than the alternative, which is nothing, mm -hmm. or at least what the executive order looks like is better than the alternative, which is nothing. Democrats basically look like the Republicans by fighting against it. Yeah. And, and ultimately, my biggest worry, so, so even giving Trump a lot of credit, like even saying you are doing the best you can. You're trying, you're like maybe outside the letter of the law, but you're trying to like, you know, you're not, you're not just taking budget and giving it to unemployment and giving it to States and stuff like that. Maybe like giving him all the credit he can. This is still gonna, I think, delay the process of getting to a really good stimulus package, right? Like it's going to say it, it's going to give, Republicans the ability to say, well, we're doing something. We don't need to get to a conclusion right now. And it's going to make yeah. Democrats have to make this political calculus and ultimately, you know, have to try to spend time messaging around this thing. Um, yeah. 
yeah, and ultimately, like, even if every piece of this worked, it would still be worse than what we need and what we had 15 days ago. And definitely a lot worse than what a lot of the Democrats were proposing. Yeah. Um, so the, the Democrats need to be very careful about their messaging on this. They need to focus on the fact that um, we're doing legal challenges because there needs to be more. Mm -hmm. All right. Because the idea is if they do end up challenging this in court and forcing Republicans to actually negotiate with them in order to create a new stimulus package, then that forces Republicans to give more ground. Yeah. Like this right here, this would be a lot of the Republican proposal. You know, you know what maybe they should try to do? I was I was thinking about this. Just keep instead of trying to challenge us in court. Don't try to displace the actions that have already been taken, um, but create a stimulus that totally overshadows it and push to try to get that through the House at the very least, and then, you know, try to pressure it through yeah. the Senate as and well. And relentlessly, relentlessly shame Republicans into supporting Exactly. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And say like, and I mean, even if they did a $400 a week, you know, enhanced federal benefit, it would it would be way more effective than the fake $400 a week that Trump is trying to give away. And so like yeah. by creating a plan that looks even better, they might be able to manage this and also basically neutralize the Trump fake stimulus in the process. So maybe not giving up, you know, the precedent, but it's, it's tricky. It's hard from a legal perspective. It may, it may just have to be like, you know, uh, not even congress like some other group that might have grounds to uh like a state or something like that that might have grounds to sue the to for the an injunction on these executive orders and now it's time for one of our more positive segments tips for good so michael why do we do tips for good every week well nathan i'm glad you asked uh we do tips for good because Ooga chaka, ooga chaka. I can't stop this feeling deep inside of me. Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me. And, uh, you know, because because when people don't realize what they do to other people, you know, they could end up, you know, having uh, an impact that they're, they're really not expecting, you know? Like, uh, you know, getting hooked on a feeling. Mm. Getting, getting high on believing. You know what mm. I'm saying? I'm in love with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really what I wanted to talk about today. <laughs> and obviously also, you know, to make the, the world a little bit of a better place. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah, yeah. There's that. So, Nathan, yeah. what is our tip for good today? Our tip for good today is another more practical tip that was inspired by some nefarious mail that I have received several times throughout the course of the last few months. And that is... Be aware of mail that looks like official documents. <laughs> so I have been receiving and my parents have been receiving this document that claims to be like something to do with the census. It says it's like they're collecting data for the census. And it's actually just Republican National Committee campaign materials where they ask a bunch of silly misleading questions like you know um 
do you believe that the fake news media <laughs> has been unfairly talking about Trump's glorious successes? That sounds like an official census document to me. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, and, and they say census on them. Like, they actually say census. So, first off, that shouldn't be legal, but the fact that it's happening means that you do need to be aware that if you get documents like that, you should look them up. You should look it up to make sure they're legit. Mm -hmm. Another example was something that happened recently, um, which turned out not to be a fake document, but it was a good thing we looked it up. Um, my parents and I actually received these absentee ballots in the mail from this like uh, voter information organization. And when I looked it up, uh, it turns out that they were actually legit, but... They had, like, their destinations were sent to the wrong jurisdictions. Hmm. So they were completely meaningless. And if we were to fill them out and then send them back and then think, oh, well, we voted and then didn't vote, then we wouldn't have gotten a vote. Yeah. So we need to be very careful about the materials that we get. Always make sure that... If there is something that appears to be any form of, of an official document that you get in the mail, just take a few seconds, look it up. See if other people are getting it. Look for the actual organization. Is it a governmental institution? Is it a private institution? Is it a private institution that is notoriously, uh, that, that is, has notoriously, like, dicked people over? <laughs> you know? <laughs> just be conscientious about that. Yeah. That's a great tip. I mean, and it's not just in the mail too. If you get if you get an email yeah. from your bank, go to your bank's website. Don't click the link. Oh yeah, always. Yeah, yeah. Whenever you have get a text from someone claiming to be or from your bank, yeah. and then they give you a number or an email, just yeah. Like Michael said, go to the actual website and call them from yeah. that. <laughs> um, that actually happened to me kind of recently, um, where I got a random text saying that someone had. Uh, committed might have committed credit card fraud on me. yep yep um and then they sent me a phone number and i'm like i'm not gonna i'm gonna call yeah. my bank yeah i'm I gonna mean, call my bank from the bank the number on the bank's website i'm not yeah. gonna use that number <laughs> yeah i periodically get calls from uh someone who says that they are they're the irs saying that if i don't um provide my social security number immediately it will be canceled <laughs> and so yeah so so don't think that's how social security numbers work yeah so there are all kinds of people both fraudsters yeah. and apparently political organizations trying to trick you so it, it it pays to pay attention to the fine print and double check when you get something from a from an official source and that's tips for good So now we're going to take a little bit to talk about antitrust laws. So, Michael, what has prompted this? Yeah, so the reason we're talking about this is because the week before last, the CEOs of the largest tech firms in the U.S. testified before a House Judiciary Subcommittee um, focusing on antitrust for these particular corporations. So we had Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, Tom, Tim Cook from Apple, and Sundar uh, Pichai from Google. Um, Don't you mean Tim Apple? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tim Cooked Apples. Um, 
And so, yeah, they video conferenced in um, to answer questions about anti-competitive practices. Um, and so what we kind of wanted to do is spend some time talking about these particular issues, exactly um, what is being investigated, what's being done, um, and explore, like talk a little bit about antitrust in general and how it applies to these companies. Um, yeah. because it's a big, a big important topic at this particular time in our, in our economy. Yeah. So to start out, um, this is, this is def this is definitely a topic that's much more Michael's area of expertise and less mine. So I'm kind of, kind of be, uh, you know, asking some questions, you know, as the, um, like not necessarily as a layman, but maybe as a, uh, medium men. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably know, you probably know more about it than you think. Yeah. Yeah. So first off, if I'm to understand anti-competitive practices, one of the easiest examples to bring up when it comes to uh, anti-competitive practices would be the existence of monopolies, mm -hmm. or at least the um, the use of monopolies in order to crush poly uh, competition to ensure that one industry or rather one organization is able to control an entire industry and thus be able to uh, price gouge, be able to set their own standards and basically be the only place that you can go in order to, you know, be satisfied within that industry. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is like kind of the prime example um, that's kind of taught to people as they go through um, mostly college courses, specifically about history, because you learn about like the Industrial Revolution, um, yeah. the you know, Rockefeller, Ford, exactly. Carnegie, Standard Oil, all, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, and so we tend to think of antitrust as a big company that controls an entire industry and does terrible things, and so the government goes in and breaks it up into a bunch of much smaller companies. Right. That seems to be like, that's like the archetypical case that we think of. Yeah. But in reality, um, there's a lot more nuance that goes into these laws, how they're administered and the remedies that come out of them. Um, so, so the idea that the result is always to break up a company is a little bit of a misconception um, because there are lots of different um, results that could actually happen. And ultimately the, the point is to arrive at a better place, not a worse place, right? Like, so, so one of the things about these tech companies is one of the ways that they provide a lot of value is by being kind of omnipresent, right? Like the, like Google provides a bunch of value with its tech ecosystem. You know, when you have a Google phone and you have a Chromebook and you have a Google home, all of these things can talk to each other seamlessly. They can interact, they can make your life cooler and better. And so we want, you know, companies to be able to add value to the economy by being big. You know, we don't want to just break up companies that are big. What we want is to stop specific anti-competitive practices. And so I think that's like the first most important distinction here is that um, when we talk about antitrust, we're talking about practices, not necessarily companies. 
And so, you know, this can be found directly on the FTC's website. So that's the Federal Trade Commission, uh, which is, along with the DOJ, responsible for administering um, and tackling antitrust issues. And on the on the agency's website, um, it says that one example of monopolization or an attempt to monopolize trade, which is the practice, um, is that uh, it is unlawful for a company um, to monopolize or, or attempt to monopolize trade, meaning that the firm with market power cannot act to maintain or acquire a dominant position by excluding competitors or preventing new entry. It is important to note that it is not illegal for a company to have a monopoly or to charge high prices or to achieve a monopoly position by aggressive methods. A company violates the law only if it tries to maintain or acquire a monopoly through unreasonable or anti-competitive methods. So what are some anti-competitive methods that these companies might use in order to you know, crush competition. Yeah, totally. So, so a lot of them have to do, um, with like either collaboration with other companies or, um, you know, having so much influence over the market that you can control, um, the behavior of, um, people in the market or the industry upstream or downstream from you. Um, so with the, the collaboration, the, the example that comes to mind for me is internet companies. So like I, I know that in a lot of the country, the only place that you can go to for internet is Comcast, yeah. which you know is a terrible organization. Um, but, but when I lived in Iowa, uh, there was no Comcast out there. Instead, it was Mediacom. Mm-hmm. So it was basically a geographic monopoly. And at one point, I was so pissed off at Mediacom because of because they randomly jacked the price up on me without telling. Yeah. And uh, I I wanted to cancel it, and I was like, come on, there's got to be something <laughs> else in this area. And there wasn't, yeah. because most internet, in most of the country, you have geographic monopolies where you can only, you can only go to one internet provider, and, you know, if you don't, then you don't have internet. Yeah. And if that was done by a company, a, a- group of companies coordinating independently of the government, that would be a prime example of um, a geographic monopoly. So you take the west side of the country, I'll take the the east side of the country, we'll divide it up in the middle so we don't have to compete with each other and we can totally control the market. That's a classic violation of antitrust law. Unfortunately, with internet companies, um, what has happened in many cases is that they have been granted exclusive use of broadband network lines. And so similar to like a utility, which runs power through the power lines um, and has exclusive access to that region, it's it's like a similar case with broadband companies. So in, in order to enter the market, you actually have to either lay your own lines or come up with a new technology, which is kind of what Verizon Fios is doing. They're like laying their own lines in specific regions and thus introducing competition. But it's a weird case with, it's a weird and crappy case with internet because they're not regulated like a utility, but they are granted monopolistic powers like a utility. So that is like the definition of crony capitalism. Yeah, it is. It is a total mess. It is an absolute yeah. mess, which we could get into for forever. Um, but But importantly, like monopolies wouldn't necessarily have to be like, corrupting a government organization, um, which is important. But some other examples are things like 
um, price fixing. So if you are a, you know, if you're coordinating with um, competitors to fix a high price. Um, hostile takeovers. So if you are going around and buying up a bunch of competitors in order to um, a consolidate market share in a specific company, um, that's another example. A dumping is a big example. So that is where you as a company um, intentionally sell products at a loss um, to drive competitors out of business. And when they go out of business, you have their market share and then you raise prices again. Um, so those are a few examples. And, and an important thing that unites all of those, two important factors. One is market control. Um, so, you know, having the ability to significantly influence the marketplace and change the competitive landscape. And two is harm to consumers, which over the last 40 to 50 years of antitrust jurisprudence has gained a lot of importance. So that's kind of what the FTC was referencing when they were saying that it's not illegal to have a monopoly. If you have a monopoly and you're a good company that is paying attention to the needs of consumers, you are um, you know, not excluding new market entrants, there just don't happen to be any, um, you're, not you're not price gouging, um, you're not you know, trying to drive anyone out of business, then you can be a perfectly acceptable monopoly. Um, and so really the, the big question in a lot of these tech cases is are these tech companies, um, you know, taking actions and, you know, using anti-competitive practices in a way that ends up harming consumers? Um, and so with that, I'll, I'll kind of transition over to talking specifically about these tech companies. Because I think okay. in a lot of ways, they're kind of natural monopolies. Not that they, you know, not that, um, you know, there could never be two companies that that are the best browsers. But in kind of just the way that things have worked out, you know, it just so happens that Google is the only browser that you or I would care to use. And yeah, I mean, no one uses Bing. Like yeah. everyone is universally ridiculed if they use Bing. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Um, I, I mean, ask.com. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> even used that in like 10 years. I don't even know if that still exists. Yeah. Um, so kind of by virtue of the fact that Google is a lot more like more, you know, a lot more efficient, a lot easier. Mm -hmm. It's kind of just naturally become the, you know, one-stop shop for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting because to me, when I think about antitrust and these companies at first, I think really two things. One is, well, of course they're monopolies, you know, Facebook was the f like first, well, I guess the second, but the, the best at the time, real social network it makes sense that it would be a monopoly. It's used by 40% of the globe. Um, yeah. And like, and it's kind of, and it kind of makes things a little bit easier because you know, you have one place where you can go to talk to like socially network with all your friends, yeah. you know? Um, although apparently the younger people aren't using Facebook no, anymore. No, that's and true. I, I recently discovered that, uh, with my students who are only like four years younger than some of them are like four years younger than me, mm -hmm. but apparently that's enough. Like they're all on, uh, Instagram mm -hmm. and TikTok, <laughs> yeah. although not for much longer. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, we'll see. Um, yeah, but 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 you're right. Like, um, 
it is a little bit strange to think of Facebook as a monopoly on social media because now people are starting to gravitate away from Facebook. But you will notice that the people that are doing this investigation um, are really only using Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, but, but and, and the second thing I think, aside from, of course, these companies are the main players. They're like the fixtures of our, our lives. They control a tremendous amount of our economy, like $5 trillion. Um, and the second thing I think is, well, I wouldn't want to break these companies up because I get a tremendous amount of benefit from the fact that they're all connected. You yeah. know, like I wouldn't want to make Amazon divest, um, you know, the Washington Post because, or I guess Jeff, uh, Jeff Bezos divest the Washington Post because like, I like the Washington Post. I don't want yeah. someone else to run it and ruin it. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I like getting same day delivery. Like the fact that Amazon runs its own distribution network is pretty important. Um, Although to be fair, the Washington Post was perfectly fine before Jeff Bezos took over it. Oh, sure. <laughs> took it over. Yeah, that's definitely true. But uh, with the, with how quickly great papers get turned into crappy papers when um, private equity firms buy them and <laughs> and squeeze the yeah. juice out of them, <laughs> I, I uh, yeah, I'd be worried if someone else were to own it. But um, but yeah, so so. I think the important thing to take away to start is just that I don't think anyone's really talking about taking these companies and destroying them, you know, dividing them up. They're way too important to our economy, to our lives, and to us as, as users. Um, but the um, House Judiciary Subcommittee was interested in very specific practices and they spent like a year gathering evidence in advance of this um, meeting with these CEOs. And so there are specific practices that they're interested in. So I figured I'd just go through um, the companies and, and the specific kind of examples and practices that um, the House Judiciary members were focused on. So to start with, um, Facebook is specifically being called out for quashing competitors um, by either buying them um, or copying them directly. Um, and so a huge example, um, which was called out by Jerry Nadler and uh, Pramila Jayapal, um, was referencing um, Facebook's acquisition of Instagram. And so um, according to Facebook internal emails among um, executives, they were specifically buying Instagram in order to neutralize a competitive threat, which is a classic anti-competitive activity. I mean, it's literally in the description. <laughs> yeah, It's like, yeah, we see this might be an issue. We're going to buy the company so that we can neutralize it and take advantage of it. Um, and, and one example that Pramila Jayapal specifically called out was discussing an email in which Mark Zuckerberg told the founder of Instagram in the process of negotiating the purchase of the company um, that Facebook was building a copycat camera service and that apparently, um, according to uh, the evidence that the House subcommittee had gathered, the founder of Instagram confided in one of the investors at the time that he feared that Zuckerberg and Facebook would go into, quote, destroy mode um, if he didn't sell Instagram to him. So that is like classic, you're using your influence as a competitor in order to force 
another company to either sell to you or uh, be destroyed. It's like a classic Destroy example. Mode. Yeah. Dude, he's already making fun of for being robotic. Did he have to frame it as destroy mode? <laughs> and I can make that joke because I'm autistic. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, so that's like a very specific example of activity that you shouldn't do. Um, now, to be fair, the FTC did approve the acquisition of Instagram by Facebook at the time, which makes, you know, you don't want to be dealing with retroactively um, charging a company for something that you gave them permission to do. But a big part of this investigation was was figuring out what these practices are, finding examples, and putting these companies on notice, um, as well as our internal agencies on notice that they have got to keep a much closer eye, and they'll be expected um, to prevent these kinds of practices. Um, so Google had a similar allegation about its practices um, that were designed to prevent competitors from... Um, from you know developing um, products that would supplant Google products, they specifically talked about stifling innovation and requiring that people who wanted to be on the browser would basically have to like pay for it, which I, I think is a reference to um, like requiring search engine optimization um, and the fact that um, that Google tends to use its incredible access to data in order to remove competitors, but also to give preference to its subsidiary products. So if you think about, you know, anytime you may have looked on Google for a way to find your, you know, to navigate anywhere, Google Maps probably came up and Waze probably came up, both Google companies. If you were searching around for a phone, um, you know, they own like the Android platform. So Android phones might be given preference. They also own YouTube. And so, like, if you think about the ability to strangle, you know, competing companies, like an up-and-coming video app or something like that, um, all they would have to do is divert traffic away from these, from these companies. Um, and Amazon was uh, charged with kind of a similar monopolized restraint of trade, um, specifically about um, taking advantage of third-party sellers. So, so using the data that Amazon has about third-party sellers to copy products that are starting to do well and then sell them themselves as a private label. Um, and even actually shutting down third-party sellers that are getting too, that are getting too successful. So basically, um, you know, taking the data that they have access to in order to copy, you know, innovative but weaker um, potential competitors and supplant them. Um, and then Apple, who kind of got off easiest of all of this uh, in all of these um, proceedings, um, was questioned about their practices, specifically about the App Store. So um, they were uh, questioned about charging too much of uh, for presence on the App Store. So right now, Apple requires that third-party apps pay 30% commission to um, the app store uh, as part of in-app sales. So that's like, you know, if you think about a profit margin for any normal company, like we're looking at 10 to 15 or 20%. For app companies, it's probably higher than that. But ultimately, you're looking at, you know, paying a ton just to be represented on a catalog, um, you know, that 
enables users to use your app. And and importantly, users of Apple products can't get apps from other places. Um, and so the thought here is that um, because Apple is charging so much for um, presence on the App Store, apps are then being made more expensive to consumers. So there's a consumer a negative consumer impact. So for example, Spotify has been really vocal about this and says that um, you know it, it pays the 30% commission for a user's first year subscription and then 15% for every year after that. And as a result of how expensive that is, um, it had to raise its prices from $10 to $13 in order to make up the difference in 2014. So basically the idea here is that because of their monopolistic position, they are driving up the price for consumers. So it, it's kind of like price fixing, um, but not quite. It would be called something closer to um, a, a, a monopoly rent, basically. So ultimately, it's not clear where um, this investigation will lead. And, you know, it's probably not going to lead directly to any specific regulation. Um, but this is like the first time that all of these huge organizations have been um, focused on for antitrust activities all at once. And so it could signal a pretty big shift in and kind of a catching up of our government to the um, you know changes that we've seen in big tech and the way that big tech has shaped our economy. Um, and so... Hopefully, we'll see some of these anti-competitive practices that, um, you know, are almost definitely harming consumers. Uh, hopefully, we'll see those kind of stamped out uh, in the near future. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Ass Hat of, of the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our Ass Hat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is uh, the mayor of Luray, Virginia, Mayor Barry Pressgrave. Wow. Yeah. Home, homegrown racist. That's, yeah, that's good yeah, to I, know. <laughs> I, I, back when I went to college, I drove by Luray almost uh, every single month. There you go. And I, you know, they have great caverns there. Yes. Too. Yes, they do. Yeah. I, would, I wish this guy would just, you know, go live in one. <laughs> Yeah, go live in a cave. Yeah. Just stay there. Perfect. <laughs> Don't interact with people anymore. So so what did uh, Mayor Pressgraves have to say? Well, to put this into context, it's been increasingly clear that most likely Joe Biden is going to be choosing a woman of color to be his vice presidential candidate. Um, now, he hasn't confirmed that, but there's a lot of speculation about it, and most of the top contenders for his ultimate VP pick are women of color. So uh, Pressgraves decided, hey, we're having a long, we're, we're having a huge national conversation about racism. Let me give you my two cents. <laughs> so he posted on his Facebook page, quote, Joe Biden has just announced Aunt Jemima as his VP pick. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, a few things. You wanna you you wanna take this one? Michael? Yeah, I'll start off. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, racist and sexist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just in such poor taste, like like poor timing, poor taste. Yeah. Like. Yeah, like comparing every woman of color to a caricaturized, um, you know, motherly maple syrup maven. <laughs> just like ridiculous and yeah uh. and and to make matters worse um his defense of it was i thought it was humorous i had no idea people would react the way they did i think people have gone overboard on this it's an election year yeah I, that's my favorite part oh it's it's you're supposed to be racist in an election year <laughs> no i think what he's trying to say is that the reason why apparently people care about racist statements is because of him you know it's because it's his elections coming mm-hmm. up so like when all those people have been marching in the street and he looks out i assume he thinks they're coming to bring him the good news yeah no that's not what they're doing bro yeah. You know, they're 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 talking they're they're advocating against, you know, systems that hold people of color in oppressive circumstances and have done so for the last like since the founding of this country. Yeah. And the fact that number 1, you said it. And look, look, if you had said it and it was, you know, it was a mistake that you hadn't thought about, maybe you were drunk that night, I don't know. And then you, you know, released an apology talking about how it was in poor taste, it was terrible, and, you know, maybe make a important point about how we need to fight against racism in all forms, especially in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. That would have been one thing. But the fact that he's trying to defend it by saying, oh, no, people don't actually care about racism, they care about me. Bro, shut up. He's specifically saying that, like, people are overreacting and it's not that big of a deal. And it's this ridiculously frustrating, like, narrative that, you know, I'm just I'm just being a little racist. Don't be so don't be so uptight. It's just it's just, you know, centuries of oppression that I'm making a joke about. What are you being all sensitive for? Just uh, and and the fact that he's like a leader of, you know, a city makes it you know even more inappropriate and awful you know i wonder if um if a person had walked up to him and said men are garbage i wonder if his response would be hashtag not all men (laughs) (laughs) so congratulations to mayor Pressgraves for being our asshat of of the the week. week So for our final uh, major segment tonight, uh, we wanted to delve a little deeper into who the third party candidates are, um, whether we think they're good candidates or not, and then talk a little bit about, um, you know, why it's probably not the best idea to vote uh, for a third party candidate, even if you support that candidate the most. Um and finally, we'll talk a little bit about a potential solution to the fact that, you know, even if you like a third-party candidate the most, you'd be voting against yourself to vote for them. Yeah. 
And that's that's really important. So if if you just heard that and you're someone that votes third party and you're tired of people saying like, oh, you're so stupid for voting third party or, oh, you know, you're so terrible or uh, you're like you're tired of people voter shaming mm. you. Just keep listening. Yeah. All right. Don't don't turn it off yet. That's not what this segment's going to be about. We're not going to try to voter shame. And in fact, I would actually like to start this segment off with an apology mm. because I will admit in 2016, when Hillary Clinton lost, I was angry and I actually did voter shame quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was very angry at people that voted for Jill Stein, voted for Gary Johnson. Um, you know, I was posting a lot of really uh, angry things on Facebook. And look, I still believe that I, I, I believe that I was right to vote for Hillary Clinton instead of Jill Stein. And I do believe that, you know, it would have been better if the people that had voted for Jill Stein had voted for Hillary Clinton. But there are a lot of important facts to bring up mm -hmm. when it comes to the decision to vote for third party. Yeah. And the most important one before before we get into the main meat of this uh, segment is the fact that shaming someone for voting third party is operating under the assumption that if they didn't vote for that third party member, they were definitely going to vote for the candidate that you wanted them to vote for. Sure. And that's not necessarily always the case. Now, you might hear that and think, okay, well, okay, with Jill Stein, I mean, wouldn't your second choice naturally be Hillary Clinton? I mean, she was to the left of Hillary Clinton, so wouldn't you think that Hillary Clinton would be better than Donald Trump? And for some people, maybe. Um, but uh, Nate Silver... Uh, of 538 actually had this really interesting breakdown discussion where he was taking an analysis of pre-election polls and uh, and national exit polls and basically making the argument that based on that, the breakdown would have been closer to um, if it was just a two-person race. 35% mm -hmm. of Jill Stein voters would have voted for Clinton. 10% would have voted for Trump. Mm. But 55% of them just would not have voted. Yeah. And if that's the case, if a third party candidate is pulling people out to vote that would have otherwise stay home, that are usually not participants in the political process, then that's not necessarily a spoiler effect because they wouldn't have voted for that candidate anyway. Totally. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about what exactly spoiler effect is in case you're not familiar with that term. But I think, yeah, to Nathan's point, the, the important thing to kind of take away is that functionally voting for a third party might be pretty similar to staying home. Um, but, you know, it's not staying home. And it is an important signal. And also keep in mind that those people that would have otherwise stayed home... There are other elections that happened that year. Yes, exactly. You know, there are other elections that they would have voted in. And if, and if you look at the comparisons between, um, you know, years when it's just a Senate race versus a presidential race, we know that people are much more motivated to turn out during a presidential year. So the fact that, you know, a Jill Stein uh, voter with an alternative of nobody turned out and voted probably for, um, you know, another set of candidates as well on that ballot is a good thing. Yeah. So we want to put all of that aside though, for a second, mm -hmm. 
and we just want to look at the candidates this year, you know, as serious candidates. We're going to, in this segment, we are going to treat them as serious candidates and talk about their actual merits, their actual policies, their actual background. Because I don't think we spend a lot of time doing that. And the reason why I want to do this is not to say you should definitely vote for third party candidates. You know, I'm, I'm not going to advocate for that. Um, but the reason why I'm doing that is because oftentimes people that decide to vote for third parties are deciding to vote for third parties, not necessarily because they are in love with their candidate, but because they're disillusioned by the two major party candidates, which oftentimes rightfully so. Mm -hmm. So I actually do want to spend some time treating them as, as legitimate candidates, um, and just talk about what their policy proposals are and what they stand for and what their background is. So let's start with the Green Party candidate. Uh, the Green Party candidate's name is Howard Hawkins. Uh, he's from New York. He uh, is a trade union activist. Um, he has done environmental activism. He was actually uh, drafted into the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. Um, even though he was heavily involved with anti-war protests, although apparently he wasn't ever deployed, um, he has run for the Green. Or, he has run for positions on twenty-four occasions, mm. uh, and these positions have ranged from uh, governor positions, from senate positions, um, and they've they've all been unsuccessful. Um, and. His whole background is focused a lot more on the activist side of politics, which is absolutely valuable and absolutely important. One thing that I think that I found very interesting that I definitely had no idea about is the fact that he actually worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign hmm. in 1972. Um, so, uh, a history of being on he, the right side, I guess. Yeah. History of being on the right side. Exactly. Um, so a few things that I also want to establish about him. So I really did not like Jill Stein as a candidate and it wasn't because, I mean, okay, I will admit part of it was probably because of the fear of her being a spoiler candidate, but there was also a lot of substantive reasons. You know, one of the biggest ones was the fact that she had never held any elected office. Um, and another huge one for me was the fact that she had used some anti-vax rhetoric in the past. And so, and there are a lot of Green Party candidates that have done that because sometimes people that support the Green Party do kind of operate under that assumption of vaccines as being potentially corporate evils. Mm. So I was a little bit concerned about that for uh, for Hawkins, but I looked it up and it turns out not only is he not an anti-vaxxer, he actually supports mandatory vaccines for children under 18 in order to protect um, children that are either too young to get a vaccine or are not able to because of health reasons uh, from potentially getting other deadly diseases, which great. You know, I 100% I support that. So that's a huge 180 from Jill Stein. Um, also looking at uh, what he supports on his campaign website, he supports the Green New Deal, which, I mean, 
considering the fact that he's from the Green Party, that is not surprising <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, he supports restoration of net neutrality. He supports a wealth tax. Uh, he supports a $2,000 a month UBI for the remainder of the COVID epidemic. Um, he supports uh, Medicare for all. I mean, in a lot of ways, his policy platform does mimic Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. So on policy, I would say that he is definitely a lot more in line with my own beliefs. Mm -hmm. I would say that by, based on his merits, he has a lifetime of, of grassroots movement organization. Um, my biggest criticism of him though is the fact that you know he has never held elected office which to be fair that is not for a lack of trying <laughs> which might actually even be worse <laughs> well not necessarily because each time he's run he has run as a green party mm. and based on the way that the system is set up yeah fair enough like it's set up specifically so that someone like him cannot win and it's not necessarily based on merits it's just because he is not um capitulating to the current the two current established uh, major parties. So that is Howard Hawkins. Let's talk about the libertarian candidate. So the libertarian candidate is uh, Joe Jorgensen. So Joe Jorgensen is a academic. Um, she is a libertarian activist. Uh, she is actually the first female candidate that the Libertarian Party has ever um, has ever nominated for uh, the, the president for, for for president. So that's that's interesting. She did have a uh, failed House of Representatives run in 1992, um, in which she got uh, two percent of the vote. Um, but again. She was running as a third party member. Uh, and this was in South Carolina's fourth district, by the way. Um, and that's really her main political experience thus far. Um, so there's less about, I was, I was able to find less about her background than I was about uh, Hawkins. So that, that was, that's a little bit concerning. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about her platform for a sec. One of the issues that I have with her platform is when you actually look at her website it's super general and not at all specific, mm -hmm. which I think is on purpose because libertarians really do try to draw from um, from both leftist circles and right wing circles mm -hmm. because they do have that uh, oftentimes culture and social liberalism. But, you know, the economic conservatism. So, for example, um, when I look at our website, um, and the way she discusses uh, health care. She basically just says that Democrat and Republican um, policies over the last 50 years are the reason why health care has become so ex expensive. And basically all she says is um, we can reduce it by, we can reduce health care price by 75% uh, by allowing real price competition. Hmm. What the hell does that actually <laughs> mean? <laughs> like, and, and one thing that was actually surprising for me, so... That's what she is presenting on her website. But I did some more digging and I found an actual legitimate proposal that she had for healthcare that I was pleasantly surprised by. So her proposal is basically 
um, putting money directly into the hands of the American people for health care and then allowing them to spend that money on whichever private companies they happen to choose. So kind of like a UBI, mm. except it's specifically for healthcare, And you're allowed to keep anything that you don't spend. So that is interesting. I don't agree with it. That's not that's not the way I would build a healthcare system. Yeah. But I would say that's I would say that's better than what we have right now. And it's at and least creative. It, <laughs> it's creative. You know, it's a lot more nuanced as far as libertarian policies go. Yeah. So I would I would actually even though I disagree with that, I would give her mad credit for um at least thinking about it, at least coming up with a legitimate plan that in some ways might actually make things better. Mm-hmm. Um some other issues that I have with her, uh, her stance on poverty is basically that the reason why poverty has been exacerbated is specifically because of governmental poverty pr- fighting programs, uh, which, again, that doesn't take account the fact that um, wages have not kept up with inflation um, in the, over the last like several decades. We haven't had a minimum wage increase since uh, like the early Obama administration, which was the, the which was putting it up to uh, uh, 725 an hour nationally, which is just abysmal. Uh, I haven't been able to find her anywhere advocating for um, raising the minimum wage, and I would kind of doubt that she that she would advocate for that, mm-hmm. considering that she is a libertarian. If I'm wrong, though, you know, feel free to send me a link and correct me, but I, I, I wasn't able to find anything like that on her website. Um, her stance on the environment was kind of it felt a little bit weaselly to me because basically what she was saying is, oh, yeah, we need to fight against climate change and we need to preserve the environment. Um, and the way to do that is to remove all these governmental structures to um, like that say that you can't uh, invest in clean energy. And it's like, OK, I, I agree with the fact that there is are instances of crony capitalism that do specifically fight against mm-hmm. uh, like fight fight against um, investments to clean energy and uh, and the clean energy industry in favor of fossil fuel companies. I agree with that, but that is not enough. A very <laughs> that is not enough. Um, her thing on taxes is really vague as well. Basically saying, oh well, whenever you increase government funding, it always leads to an increase in tax rate. Well, that's a really that's not a very nuanced way of looking at it because. Like, there are lots of different taxes. And are we talking about taxes on the middle class, taxes on the rich? Mm-hmm. Well, Joe Biden is specifically advocating against tax cuts for, you know, corporations and billionaires and actually increasing taxes on them, but specifically advocating for not raising taxes on the middle class. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, that seems a little bit intellectually dishonest. Um, but on the positive side, um, she is very anti-interventionist when it comes to foreign policy, which I appreciate. Uh, she she is um, she is absolutely for the demilitarization of the police, and she actually argues that she would use executive action in order to end civil forfeiture. <laughs> not surprising, um, as a as a libertarian, that is yeah, a, not surprising. That is a hill they'll die on, which um, rightfully and, so. <laughs> and to also and to also pardon people convicted of nonviolent victimless crimes. Mm. Um, you know, and end the war on drugs. So that's the interesting thing about libertarians with me. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes I agree with them so much, and they're so much better than Democrats. And then sometimes they'll say something like, you know, where she says, where, oh, we need to, 
completely, we need to end funding to the Department of Education yeah. and make, um, you know, make the states completely the arbiters of of the education system in the United States, which is which is absolutely terrible because that creates a less than universally implemented standard mm -hmm. of education. Now, I'm not saying now when I say that, I'm not talking about like um, specifically, uh, you know, standardized learning. I'm talking about um, standardized accommodation. So like the fact that um, education is currently paid for by property taxes, which means that in neighborhoods with lo a lower socioeconomic status, the schools are significantly lower quality. So I'm not talking, I'm talking about any universal quality of education. Mm -hmm. And if we just leave that up to the states and we get the federal government even less involved with that, then that basically just makes it so that we can keep screwing people over in those low income, um, in those low income neighborhoods and low income communities. Mm -hmm. So very mixed bag, I would say with, uh, with her also, you know, like I said, never held any elected office. So not someone that I would even consider voting for, um, based on, based on her background and based on her, on her policy proposals. So now that we've laid all of that out, let's talk about why voting for a third party is a waste of your vote. Now, now don't, <laughs> don't shut us off. Don't turn yeah. us off yet. <laughs> Because we're gonna, because we're gonna present a solution. Because we're going. The argument that I want to make is that the fact that it is, is that it is true that voting for a three uh, Green Party candidate is throwing away your vote. But the fact that it's throwing away your vote is a problem inherent in our electoral system. Yeah. So because we have a first past the post system, where you can get. 0.1 percentage point greater than your opponent in a state. And maybe you didn't even need, you didn't even need to get the majority. You know, you just, your, your opponent got 43.1% um, and you got 43.0%. Your opponent wins and they get all of those electoral votes. So part of it is a problem with the electoral college system. But part of it is also that first past the post system where you get one vote and it goes toward that towards that one person and it's a vote against everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that really does make it so that third party candidates cannot gain any power because every election really does become a dichotomy. And yeah, just to break that down in, in a little more detail, because it's a it's it's so regular to hear that. A third party candidate can't win, so you shouldn't vote for a third party candidate. And and I think like for people that I've spoken to, the natural rebuke to that is, well, I'm trying to send a message or I'm trying to, uh, you know, if everybody voted for the third party candidate that they actually wanted or the candidate that they actually wanted, then, you know, we could actually have, you know, the third party might actually make progress. Um, and what they might be thinking of is is one poll that said that uh, forty percent of voters identify as independent. But when you account for the fact that um, though that there are independent voters who identify as independent but lean Democrat or Republican, and when they do lean Democrat or Republican, um, they vote in that direction similarly to people that that identify as a Democrat or Republican that that number of 40% that identify as independent goes down to about 
eight to twelve percent that are that are actually independent voters. And so, actually, if people voted for the candidate that they actually wanted to win, given a two-party system, they would vote exactly the way that they currently vote. Yeah, we yeah. yeah. And and to Nathan's point, the problem is not that people aren't given some choices. The problem is fundamentally that you know because you're incentivized to vote for the person most likely to win who is least offensive you're actually trying to vote uh, you're you're voting ag- against the candidate that you don't want to win rather than for the candidate yeah. that you do want to win yeah which kind of allows the candidate that you hate less yes to kind of be able to just twiddle their thumbs and you know they're not held to a higher standard and actually one one point that i would make about third party candidates is that in some ways especially with the green party the threat that voters might be like all right well screw the democrats i'm voting for third party that can sometimes be enough to scare them into making uh policy capitulations sure and that is absolutely a positive thing yeah but the one thing that I want to bring up here, and this is actually something that uh, Howard Hawkins brought up, and he this is probably the best response I've ever heard to the accusation uh, of spoiler candidates. So he was asked about this, and his argument was basically that, well, the reason why I would be a spoiler candidate is because of our current electoral system. Yeah. But the Green Party has had a part of its platform ranked choice voting and a national popular vote for years and neither party has been willing to adopt Mm -hmm. that the democratic party has not been willing to adopt that so we are proposing a solution to the very problem that you are claiming that you are worried about Mm -hmm. but you're not willing to accept that solution so the natural conclusion one could make to that is the reason why you're against that is because you want to stay in power. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that this party institution stays in power. And this goes back to one of the points that I've made on this pod over and over again, and that's the fact that political parties are a means to an end, and that end is policy. I really don't care if this helps the Democratic Party as an institution or hurts the Democratic Party as an institution. I care about policies. And if helping the Democratic Party helps to create more policies, then yeah, I'll help the Democratic Party. But if a system like a ranked choice voting system could potentially put in some more people that I think have the right views, then that makes more sense. And it gives people the opportunity to vote for who they want to vote for. So let's talk about what ranked choice voting actually is, how it functions. Yeah, sure. So, So the way ranked choice voting functions is on the ballot, there's a list of all the candidates, and you rank your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, your fourth choice, so on. And there are several rounds of vote counting. So in the first round, they see if anybody has um, a majority of first choices. And if no one has a majority, then they go to the second round. And what they do in the second round is whoever had the least first choices, their second choices get counted uh, as votes. And they keep cutting people off until one person has a majority, which means 
that if you were to vote for a third party, say you, you wanted to vote for the Green Party and your second choice is a Democrat, you could vote for that Green Party as your first choice. And then if like 5% of people listed their for first choice as the Green Party and that ended up getting eliminated, then your vote would then cast towards the Democrat. Yeah. So you didn't throw your vote away because it still went towards someone that had a chance of winning. And you were still able to send your message that you prefer yeah. the policies of the other candidate and in fact even provide a better a better set of information to the candidates and to the electoral system that they can then try to tailor their policies to. What you said was, I'd prefer all these policies. Second to that, I prefer these policies and I, w I would prefer the policies of this other candidate least. Yeah. So the bottom line is, this is something that if you hate the two-party system, which almost every single person I talk to, Democrat, Republican, Independent, they all hate the two-party mm -hmm. system. This is how you reform it. And the people that are standing in the way are the, the people that have power because of the system. Yeah. They are Democrats and Republicans. So we do need to start holding those people accountable. So start um, demanding that your elected candidates um, address this, yeah. you know, force them to take a position on it, call your representatives and ask them if they have a position on mm -hmm. it. And if they don't have a position on it, call them again the next week. And if they still don't have a position on it, call them again the next week, show up to a town hall and ask them, do you support ranked choice voting? Mm -hmm. And force them to take a position on it because in a lot of ways, this is a no brainer issue. Yeah. I feel like this is an issue that Democrats, Republicans should all be able to get behind yeah and because it doesn't like it really does not infringe on anything except the power of the established parties yeah exactly and you know like there are some political commentators who are making arguments that it's actually a weaker system but what i've found is with every single one of those arguments when you actually look deeper into it it's a problem that we already have as part of our two-party system yeah. it's just disguised with the false choice of only two parties. And with that, we'll finish up with one of our more lighthearted segments, um, our highlights. So Nathan, what were your highlights this week? My highlight this week was getting to spend Sunday finally seeing my nieces who I haven't seen in months. Uh, we mm. basically we visited them and we spent the entire time outside and, you know, we kicked soccer ball around and I really missed them and it was really good to see them. And, you know, it was just very joyous. What about you, Michael? Oh, that's wonderful. That's really nice. Um, I had a very relaxing weekend. It was excellent. I, uh, visited a friend. Um, we blew up a, a blow up kiddie pool and sat out in the sun <laughs> and it was really nice. <laughs> Very relaxing. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again 